Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault, violence, suicide, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In the early morning hours of August 17, 1913, 42-year-old Harry Thaw slipped into the courtyard outside the Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. It had taken him five long years to convince the guard to let him walk around unsupervised. As he ambled through the freshly cut grass, he watched early morning commuters trundle past through the iron bars of the gate. As he neared the fence, he took a furtive glance behind him. No one was watching. He loitered near the gate until he heard the hum of the milkman's van approaching. Then he braced himself for what was coming next. It all happened in a flash. As a guard opened the gate for the van, Harry sprinted out, pumping his arms as he dashed away from the asylum. The guard was after him in an instant, but it was already too late. Harry reached the end of the street and threw himself into the back seat of an idling limousine. With a screech, the vehicle pulled away and zoomed northward. Harry Thaw was finally free. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. Last week, we discussed model and actress Evelyn Nesbitt's relationships with architect Stanford White and railroad heir Harry Thaw. When she was just 16, 47-year-old Stanford drugged and raped Evelyn. When she confided in her future husband, Harry, about the assault, he became obsessed with making Stanford pay for what he'd done. This week, we'll discuss how Harry took his revenge on Stanford in 1906, a scandal sensational enough to be termed the crime of the century. We'll also talk about the consequences Harry faced for his actions and Evelyn's struggle to put her ruined career back together after the trial. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. 
Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armor All products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. On the evening of June 25, 1906, 21-year-old Evelyn Nesbitt and her husband, 35-year-old Harry Thaw, attended the premiere of the musical, Mamselle Champagne, at Madison Square Garden's rooftop theater. New York City was supposed to be a pit stop on the way to Europe, where the couple hoped to reconnect after a turbulent first year of marriage. Evelyn was excited to get away from her new mother-in-law, Mary, who made life on the Thaw family estate difficult. The vacation should have been relaxing, but as usual, Harry couldn't keep his mind off Stanford White. The truth was, Harry was obsessed with Stanford. The knowledge of what the architect had done to Evelyn when she was just 16 years old haunted him. Stanford was a rapist and a pedophile, and it made Harry sick to see him trapsing around New York, flaunting his wealth and avoiding punishment for his crimes. Harry wanted to put an end to Stanford once and for all. His fixation wasn't really for Evelyn's sake, it was a matter of pride. He believed that as Evelyn's husband, he should be the first and only man to share a bed with her. In Harry's mind, the fact that Stanford raped Evelyn wasn't just an invasion of her body, it was an insult to him as well. Before I continue with Harry's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to a 2009 article published by the American Psychological Association, people who seek vengeance tend to hold attitudes of dominance. As social psychologist Ian McKee writes, these people are motivated by power, by authority, and by the desire for status. They don't want to lose face. As the son of a railroad tycoon, Harry Thaw was born with status. His ultra-privileged upbringing meant he was accustomed to getting what he wanted all the time. He didn't just want power, he expected it, and he demanded control over his wife's body, just like everything else. Harry's desire for vengeance was partially rooted in misogyny, and so he was more than willing to hurt Evelyn to get it. The truth was, that when he bought the tickets to Mamselle Champagne, he knew Stanford White would be at the show too. As it turned out, 52-year-old Stanford had a front row seat. The moment Evelyn turned her attention away, Harry disappeared. Sneaking through the audience like a shadow, Harry made his way to the front. Then, in front of an audience of around 900 people, Harry drew a pistol and pointed it at the back of Stanford's head. At first, nobody noticed Harry's silhouette in the darkened theater. Everyone was focused on the stage where an actor was singing a song, ironically titled, I Could Love a Million Girls. 
Then Harry fired three rapid shots. Two of the bullets tore through Stanford White's skull, while one ripped through his shoulder. Stanford's body crumpled into a heap on the floor, knocking down a glass as he fell. He died immediately. Sometime after, according to witness reports, Harry screamed, you ruined my wife. For a moment, the audience sat in stunned silence, unsure whether or not the gunshots were part of the production. It all happened too fast for Evelyn to process. Then the actors on stage froze and all eyes turned towards Harry Thaw, who held his hands up to signal that he didn't intend to shoot anybody else. In a flash, he dropped his arms and took off towards the elevator. He didn't make it very far before one of the employees tackled him, took his gun, and held him down until police arrived. Evelyn rushed over to Harry, horrified and confused. When she asked her husband why he'd killed Stanford as he was arrested, he just smiled. As the police hoisted him off the ground, she leaned in to kiss his cheek. Evelyn couldn't believe what was happening. Tears streamed down her face until she could hardly see. She kept expecting Stanford to stand back up, to insist the whole thing had been a wild joke. She had known her husband hated Stanford, but she had no idea he was capable of murder. For a while, she stood in the lobby, unsure of what to do next. She had to move. She had to go somewhere but leaving the building would somehow make it all too real. Besides, she had no idea where to go. She couldn't head back to the estate and face her mother-in-law. She'd given up everything for Harry and now he'd abandoned her. She felt helpless. Men were always abandoning her, making her feel powerless. Eventually, Evelyn managed to overcome her shock. She made some calls to an old friend in the city who graciously invited Evelyn to stay at her apartment for the night. Meanwhile, Harry Thaw was dragged to the police station on foot. The whole ordeal seemed almost comical to him. Apparently, these officers had no idea who he was. Otherwise, he was sure they wouldn't be treating him like some common criminal. Even though it was nearing midnight, it was still warm outside and Harry's forehead gathered sweat as he walked. A mosquito landed on his temple. He went to smack the bug, but the steel cuffs dug into his wrist and he cried out in pain. He squirmed and stretched, trying and failing to reach the small red bite. One officer stifled a laugh. The other ignored Harry altogether. He blushed and brooded. He would see to it that these policemen were fired. He was a hero for shooting Stanford White. He had freed the world of an evil man. He should be exalted, not thrown in jail. At the station, officers booked Harry like any other suspect. As it turned out, the police knew exactly who he was, but they were determined to make sure he received no special treatment. They charged Harry with homicide and placed him in a holding cell without bail. Meanwhile, Harry's mother, Mary, received news of his imprisonment. She was willing to spend the Thaw family's multi-million dollar fortune to liberate her son. With his mother's help, Harry was confident he would get off scot-free. 
Although police tried to treat Harry like any other prisoner, his deep pockets afforded him substantial leverage. He had his valet bring him a change of clothing shortly after he arrived. Insisting that he was unfit to consume prison food, Harry had at least one multi-course meal catered to the jail. He was even able to convince authorities that he needed one full bottle of champagne a day just to get by. Harry Thaw's life of luxury suffered practically no interruption, and apparently he lacked even a shred of self-awareness about his situation. A photograph was even taken of Harry wearing a clean white shirt and tie, eating an elaborate dinner in his cell. Perhaps Harry believed that the photograph would drum up sympathy and people would be heartbroken to see him eating all alone. Unsurprisingly, the vast majority of people found it difficult to relate to Harry Thaw or Stanford White. Both men were unimaginably rich and out of touch with real life. The murder case soon devolved into a media circus, turning both Harry and Stanford into some of the most infamous villains of the Gilded Age. Still, as much as public opinion turned against Harry, his mother was determined to get him off the hook. She doggedly used every means at her disposal. Though she never liked her daughter-in-law, now that her son was in trouble, Evelyn Nesbitt was her most valuable weapon. When we return, Mary Thaw plots to craft the perfect defense for Harry. Hi listeners, are you ready to sink your teeth into a sizzling new Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as JFK, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets, very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Follow the fantastic new series Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On June 25th, 1906, 35-year-old Harry Thaw shot and killed 52-year-old Stanford White in front of an audience of 900 people. There was no doubt that Harry was guilty, but his mother Mary was determined to set him free, even if it meant spending the entirety of the family's multi-million dollar fortune. She had little interest in why Harry had done what he did. She only cared for her family's reputation and her son's well-being. As Harry awaited trial, 
Mary levied her social influence and dished out huge sums of cash to help craft a defense. She sought to make Harry's murder seem like an act of righteous, vigilante justice. To do this, Mary knew that her greatest challenge was to counter the media's representation of her son. After news of the murder broke, New England newspapers were flooded with salacious details about Harry, determined to sensationalize any dirt they could dig up on him. Rumors spread about his alcoholism and morphine habit. Sex workers he had hired said he became violent behind closed doors, beating and whipping them. Overall, news outlets presented Harry Thal as mentally unstable, causing the public to view him as a dangerous criminal. On the other hand, Stanford White wasn't spared from the media takedown either. Formerly a famous and respected architect in New York City, he was soon outed as an insatiable womanizer. One biographer later described Stanford as a predatory satyr, and no one seemed shocked that the architect's behavior had come back to bite him. A taxi driver was quoted as saying that he wasn't surprised that Stanford had been shot, only that a husband was the one who did it. He told the courtroom, everyone always figured it would be a father. These perspectives, of course, worked to Mary Thaw's advantage. As long as she could make sure Stanford looked worse than Harry, then she had a shot at portraying Harry as a hero. But she needed to control the narrative, and that meant preventing more sordid stories about Harry from being leaked. In the immediate aftermath of the shooting, Evelyn didn't speak to the press. She didn't tell them that Harry had become increasingly controlling since they'd gotten married, or that he was prone to outbursts of rage. Mary needed to make sure she stayed quiet until the trial and defended Harry on the stand. Unfortunately for Mary, Evelyn had no interest in getting involved. Stanford's death left her heartbroken Although they had a complicated past, she still seemed to have some compassion for the man. Stanford had financially supported her and her family for years when they first moved to New York. Moreover, Evelyn was horrified by what Harry had done and feared that the murder would destroy her own reputation and air her dirty laundry. When Mary first tried to convince her daughter-in-law to testify, Evelyn refused. In a newspaper report, Evelyn claimed that the situation was too terrible for words. But Mary knew Evelyn's weak spot, financial security. Evelyn had no income or savings of her own. For this reason, Mary Thaw is alleged to have paid Evelyn somewhere between $25,000 to even $1 million in exchange for her testimony. However, according to author Paula Yurabiru, who wrote about the case in her book, American Eve, it was more likely that Mary Thaw didn't officially bribe Evelyn. She only promised to continue supporting her. In the introduction to their book, Thinking About Bribery, Neuroscience, Moral Cognition, and the Psychology of Bribery, editors Philip Nichols and Diana Robertson write that an individual's decision to give or take a bribe is shaped by a complex set of social and moral norms, along with the perceived cost-benefit ratio. Mary was used to leveraging her money for power and influence, so her willingness to potentially resort to bribery is not surprising. For her part, 
Evelyn had a history of making sacrifices for monetary gain. She was unhappy with her marriage to Harry to begin with and was potentially planning to file for divorce. Besides, after over six years of living with practically endless funds from Stanford and Harry, Evelyn too was out of touch with normative standards of behavior and morality. Although it would ruin the legacy of Stanford White and put her reputation in jeopardy, Evelyn agreed to play the grieving wife on the stand for Mary Thaw. For Mary's part, securing Evelyn's testimony was only one part of a complicated plan. She also paid expensive psychologists, then called alienists to examine her son and offer their perspectives. Mary also set her sights on hiring the best legal team in America. Her son's defense was headed by Delphine Delmas, a famous attorney who traveled from California to represent him. The rest of the team was made up of the best lawyers money could buy. As Mary orchestrated her son's defense, he sat in an eight foot by nine foot cell on murderer's row. According to rumors, he continued to have food and clothing delivered and got close enough to the guards that they would give him cigars and let him outside to smoke. Although the cell was uncomfortable, Harry trusted he wouldn't be there for long. His money had gotten him out of trouble dozens of times before, and he had no reason to believe this would be any different. When Harry Thaw arrived at his trial on January 23, 1907, he walked into the courtroom with an air of smug superiority. The jury was full of people he knew would be sympathetic. He actually had to suppress a smile. As soon as these people knew the truth about Stanford White, they wouldn't just acquit Harry, they'd hail him as a hero. He straightened a suit jacket and sat down next to his lawyer, Mr. Delmas, who shot him an intense look. Delmas was one of the greatest attorneys in America, but Harry couldn't help noticing he was fidgeting in his seat. Harry suddenly deflated. He felt his heart beat faster. He was missing something. They'd been over this plenty of times and Harry understood most of it. He knew that he'd committed murder in front of 900 witnesses, but he just couldn't fathom why anybody cared that Stanford White was dead. He was a rapist and a pedophile. Good riddance. Still, Delmas's anxiety rubbed off on Harry. Maybe things weren't going to be as easy as he expected. Harry Thaw had no idea how grave his situation was because it would be impossible to argue that Harry didn't commit the crime. So Delphine Delmas tried to convince the jury that he should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. It was a monumental task that required Delmas to convince the jury that Harry's crime wasn't premeditated. But law enforcement believed the crime looked deliberate and should be considered murder in the first degree. Even Evelyn suspected Harry had orchestrated the entire trip to New York to kill Stanford White, but she kept this notion from the jury and did everything the defense team asked of her. Most importantly, Evelyn took the stand and recounted the evening that Stanford White raped her when she was just 16 years old. She characterized Harry as the perfect husband and argued that he had been driven mad by the knowledge of what Stanford did. In killing Stanford, she said, 
Harry was acting on her behalf, trying to restore her honor. Newspapers across the country seized on Evelyn's testimony. The trial of the century, a deadly love triangle between two millionaires and New York's former it girl, was, according to the New York Times, being reported to the ends of the globe. The barrage of media coverage meant everyone had an opinion about the case. In order to give Harry a fair trial, the judge decided the jury would have to be isolated. It was the first sequestered jury in American history. The defense tried to claim that Harry had been sane until the moment he saw the architect, when he was overcome with madness. If Harry's insanity was temporary, it would be useless to send him either to jail or to an asylum because he wouldn't pose any danger to society. It was a long shot and it didn't look good for Harry. Nevertheless, the conflicting statements from the witnesses, as well as the far-fetched insanity claim, made the jury feel torn and confused. The ultimate result was a hung jury. Harry went back to jail to await a second trial. With Harry behind bars once again, the media's fixation with the case increased. A film entitled The Unwritten Law was released in 1907 between Harry's first and second trials. The movie told the story of the now infamous love triangle, but with some major biases. It portrayed Stanford as just shy of demonic and made Harry's murderous act seem philanthropic. The film even showed Harry being acquitted at his second trial, though it had yet to begin. When Harry's second trial did commence on January 6, 1908, the defense realized their strategy was doomed. Thinking that having Harry sent to an asylum was better than life in prison, they stopped trying to prove temporary insanity and instead argued that Harry had been mentally unstable since childhood. Mary Thaw wasn't happy with the plan at first. The societal stigma against mental illness was strong, and she hated for her family to be associated with it. Besides that, she'd sunk an estimated $1 million into her son's defense with the goal of acquittal. Ultimately, she resigned herself to the new tactic, and the second trial was quicker and less controversial than the first. After just under four weeks, the jury found Harry not guilty by reason of insanity. 37-year-old Harry Thaw was sent to an asylum for the criminally insane in Fishkill, New York. With her husband locked away and her reputation tarnished by the intrigue and speculation surrounding the trials, 24-year-old Evelyn scrambled to put her life back together. She was happy to finally put the incident and Harry Thaw behind her. But Harry had other plans. Up next, Harry plans his great escape. Now, back to the story. In February of 1908, 37-year-old Harry Thaw was sent to an asylum in upstate New York for murdering Stanford White. His wife, 24-year-old Evelyn, moved from a New York City hotel to a home on Park Avenue, which Thaw paid for. Though she wasn't happy with the marriage, she still depended on the Thaws for monetary support, though Mary Thaw was giving Evelyn a smaller and smaller allowance. Evelyn also may have stayed with Harry to avoid further scandal. Whatever her reasons for staying, 
the two of them saw each other at the asylum sporadically. In early 1910, 26-year-old Evelyn discovered she was pregnant. Many people, including the Thaw family, speculated that she might be involved with another man, but Evelyn insisted the child belonged to Harry. Evelyn moved to Europe to avoid the public eye. When baby Russell was born in October 1910, she gave him the Thaw family name. Russell's birth brought out the worst in Evelyn and Harry's marriage. From the asylum, Harry gave interviews where he claimed that the last time Evelyn visited him was long before Russell's birth and that the couple had been unofficially separated since 1908. There was no way he could be the boy's father, he said, and he was willing to go to court to prove it. In retaliation, Evelyn too spoke to journalists and newspapers. She described Harry's obsession with young girls and virginity and said he had a mania about obedience. Anytime she went against his wishes, he promised to beat her, though she never clarified whether he followed through on his threats. Evelyn's statements left her mother-in-law, Mary Thaw, irate. Although Evelyn insisted that Harry was Russell's father, the Thaw family cut her off financially and socially, leaving her alone to fend for herself and her son. Evelyn didn't bother trying to file for a divorce. She and Harry were all but separated and legal proceedings would require her to speak to him, which she certainly didn't want to do. Instead, she dedicated herself to rebuilding her entertainment career without the Thaw's help. Unfortunately, it was no easy task. Evelyn, once a famous model in New York City, was now known as the woman who drove Harry Thaw to commit the crime of the century. The new reputation stopped most high-profile directors and artists from associating with her. But others saw it as an opportunity. Evelyn Nesbitt, the woman so beautiful it could drive a man to kill, drew crowds like nobody else. She wouldn't be able to put her ruined Broadway career back together, but vaudeville accepted her right away. Evelyn had no choice but to accept the work she could find. After enjoying modest success as a dancer in vaudeville shows, she did what she could to forge her own way and forget about Harry Thaw. Meanwhile, Harry had other things on his mind. Over the course of five years in the Matawan Asylum, he gained guard's trust and abused it to make his escape. 42-year-old Harry slipped through the hospital gates on August 17, 1913. A driver who some journalists speculated was hired by the Thaw family picked him up in a black limousine and the men sped north towards Canada. Harry gripped the leather seat as the limousine peeled away from the asylum. He wanted to celebrate, but he couldn't just yet. He couldn't relax until they crossed the Canadian border. The first part of the drive lasted four painstaking hours. Harry crouched in his seat, staring out the back window. Sure, he would see the red and blue lights of a police cruiser appear behind them at any moment. Because the limousine would attract too much attention passing through small New England towns, Harry's driver decided they should take a train from New Hampshire to the border, then drive again in a different car to enter Quebec. When they finally reached the border, Harry broke into a sweat. He kept thinking of worst-case scenarios. 
Canadian authorities may have been notified of his escape, or a New York police cruiser might swing around the corner at the last moment. But it was only smooth sailing. When he entered Quebec, he felt a flood of peace. He was, he thought, a free man. But as usual, Harry was too optimistic. As soon as Canadian authorities found out he was there illegally, he was extradited back to the United States. With escape no longer an option, Harry and his mother turned back to legal maneuvering. They doggedly pursued the case, taking advantage of every loophole they could find to persuade a judge to hear Harry out. In June 1915, they finally succeeded. That month, a jury convened at the Supreme Court of New York. After listening to testimony from Harry and an array of witnesses, they determined that he was sane enough to leave the Matawan Asylum. Harry left the courtroom as smug as ever. It had taken years, but he had finally made his way out, legally this time. Now, Harry was determined to live it up as a completely liberated man. He took no responsibility for five-year-old Russell and divorced 31-year-old Evelyn soon after he was released. He didn't offer her any money as part of their separation, but she didn't argue. She was happy to be rid of him. Evelyn continued to work in vaudeville and even landed a few roles in silent films. In 1916, she married a dancer named Jack Clifford, but the union was strained from the beginning. Jack was unfaithful, and by some accounts, he was upset that his wife's reputation preceded them wherever they went. He couldn't stand being caught up in the storm of rumors about Evelyn Nesbitt and her former lovers. No matter what Evelyn did, she couldn't escape her association with Harry Thaw, whose reputation only got worse after his release. In 1917, 46-year-old Harry abused and imprisoned a 19-year-old boy named Fred Gump. According to Fred, Harry had kept him tied up in a hotel room, beating and whipping him until he was bruised and bloody. It was a miracle he was finally able to escape. His story was eerily similar to the statements made by sex workers prior to Harry's first trial. Clearly, Harry's time in the asylum had done little to curb the violent impulses that landed him there in the first place. If anything, it seemed that being locked away for so long gave Harry's sadism time to fester and erupt into something even worse than before. Although Fred Gump was the only person to accuse Harry of keeping him trapped, it's impossible to know if there were other victims who never came forward. Unfortunately, Harry wasn't put in jail for his attack on Fred either. When the authorities found him, he had attempted suicide and was sent to another asylum. Fed up with all the negative attention that fell on Evelyn after Harry's arrest, Jack Clifford reportedly left her only a year or two after they married. Throughout the 1920s, Evelyn's mental health rapidly declined. Almost two decades of being in the spotlight surrounded by crime and controversy left her insecure and paranoid. Mark Scheller, a psychologist at the University of British Columbia, hypothesizes that prolonged fame can lead to chronic self-consciousness, which could account for the unpleasantness and stress many celebrities report experiencing. 
Shallow writes that this results from celebrities internalizing the constant scrutiny that the public subjects them to. The pressure can become so overwhelming that celebrities may feel forced to choose between running from the limelight or running from themselves via self-destructive behaviors. For Evelyn, retreating from the public eye wasn't feasible. She made her living in theater and film. Even if she chose to quit acting, flying under the radar would be impossible. Everyone in New York knew her face. Unable to leave her fame behind, Evelyn drank heavily in an attempt to run from herself. She eventually developed a morphine addiction as well. She lost the lucrative parts she used to get in films and plays. Needing more money to finance her habit, she continued performing in small cabarets and taking odd jobs. Evelyn grew used to being alone. When Harry Thaw was released from the asylum in 1924, she seemed to make no attempt to contact him. Once again, she focused on caring for Russell without her ex-husband's help. For a while, things started to improve. Evelyn would get control of her addictions, only to descend back into destitution and despair. At one point in 1926, when she was feeling depressed and despondent, 42-year-old Evelyn attempted suicide by drinking disinfectant. She was hospitalized fast enough to be saved, but her mental health remained precarious. Word about Evelyn's hospitalization eventually got around to 55-year-old Harry. He inquired about her condition and wished her well. Afterward, they reconciled enough to be civil, but their relationship was too tarnished to be anything close to friendship. After eight years in an asylum following the Fred Gump incident, Harry was once again free to enjoy his family's fortune. Harry managed to avoid another arrest and live the rest of his life as a free man. Following his mother's death in 1929, Harry spent his inheritance on properties in Florida, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Manhattan, Saratoga Springs, California, and Virginia. He traveled frequently and spent his money freely until he died of a heart attack in 1947 at age 76. Evelyn continued to work as a singer and performer in small nightclubs through the 1930s. After World War II, Evelyn followed her son and his wife to Los Angeles. There, Russell worked as an airline pilot and Evelyn, enjoying relative anonymity in California, taught ceramics classes. Russell had three children of his own who Evelyn spent her days doting on. Near the end of her life, Evelyn Nesbitt lived quietly. She filled her apartment with pieces of art she made at the ceramic studio, attended weekly mass at a local Catholic church, and adopted cats to keep her company while her son and grandchildren were away. She died of natural causes on January 17, 1967, aged 82. After more than 60 years of fame, she was finally allowed to rest. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi again. Don't forget to check out the sizzling new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast.